As we continue the series called Inspired, uh, we're going to land on the book of Ezekiel. If you want to turn over there to Ezekiel, and we're going to get a little bit more into the man Ezekiel, and even more than that, we're going to get into some of the battles that he faced and the battles that we faced. The book was written actually around 593 B.C., and uh, it's very similar to the book of Isaiah. But what's interesting is Ezekiel actually started out as a priest. So in his life, he really felt like it was all charted out in front of him. He was going to be serving his people, and that's just the way it was going to be for the rest of his life. But then something interesting happened, and that was the nation of Babylonia came in and they took countless Jews along with Ezekiel, captured them, and moved them to Babylonia into what would be what we would understand as a concentration camp. So he transitioned from a priest to a prisoner. But then in chapters 1 through 3, something amazing happened. God encountered Ezekiel in a profound way. And he shared with Ezekiel through this amazing dream that he wasn't going to just be a priest or a prisoner, but he was actually going to be a prophet. That he wasn't going to just speak to his people, but he was going to speak to a pagan nation about the need to come to God. And so when I look at the life of Ezekiel, I'm like, wow, that is a guy that we can learn a lot from. We learn a lot because he used creative objects, which we're going to use here in just a little bit. Illustrations, examples from his own life to plead with people to come to God. Now, we know about transition. When we hear about a priest who became a prisoner and a prophet, the average American worker, the average job expectancy is 3.8 years. That's how many jobs you're going to have in your lifetime. Uh, Americans will switch careers six or seven times in their lifetime. So we know a little something about transition. But I looked at the life of Ezekiel. I wanted to go even farther back and say, what did this guy have in common with the disciples? What did this guy have in common with the disciples and everybody sitting here this morning? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. I'd like us all to stand as we read from the inspired Word of God this morning. And these two verses, I think, capture the heartbeat of Ezekiel and what he's trying to communicate to the people then and what he wants to communicate to us today. And so let's read these two verses together up on the screen. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put in my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Amen. You may be seated. What is it that Ezekiel had in common with everyone that's sitting here this morning? Well, in the pure Ezekiel style, I want to just use an illustration. Danny Warfel, you may remember that name, won the Heisman Trophy in 1996. He went on to have a pro career. He was okay in the pros, nothing great. But he was asked, what's the difference between college football and the NFL? He said, there's really only two differences. The guys in the NFL are a lot faster, and they hit a lot harder. And so he said, let me give you an example of how hard they hit. He was in an exhibition game, dropped back for a pass, and he was blindsided. Now, you know that's the worst thing for a quarterback, is if you get hit and you don't even know what hit you. But he got hit so hard that he was out for a second. He said, I hit the ground, and he said, I was squinting. And I slowly opened my eyes, and I could just see a little glimmer of light. And for a split second, he thought, I think I just died, and that's heaven. And all of a sudden, he said, miraculously, I felt my entire body being lifted up. 
He said, after a few seconds, I finally realized what was going on. Some of his own players lifted him up, but you know what had happened? He got hit so hard, his helmet flipped around, and he was looking through the ear hole. <laughs> How many of you have felt like that this year at least once, huh? You just go through life sometimes, and here's the thing that Ezekiel had in common with all of us. Sometimes we have to play hurt. There's no other option. It wasn't that long ago that I was with a group of men, and then right after that study, the next week I was with the, the Bible study at the Cloverleaf, and we talked extensively about what it's like to play hurt and what we need to do when we're playing hurt. Ezekiel teaches us powerful lessons about navigating through that, and questions this morning are very important. When you're playing hurt, to ask yourself tough questions. Do you realize that Jesus in the Gospels asked 173 questions. So it's important to ask questions. So here's the first question when you're playing hurt, and I'd like to ask Vanna Voorhees if she would step out. And let's give Vanna a big hand this morning. What'd you say, Vanna never talks either. Okay. <laughs> okay, question number one. Am I physically moving forward. Sweat. Am I physically moving forward? Now that seems like an odd question when you're playing hurt. But do you realize that in the first three chapters of Ezekiel, there's a word that's used over and over again. You want to guess what the word is? Go. 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 I mean, it's like God is saying, I know you're thinking about this. Go. I know you're dwelling on this. Go. I know you're a prisoner. Go. And it's the same for us, even when we're playing hurt. This is a section from a famous speech at the front end of World War II from Winston Churchill. And he said this, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, and tears, and sweat. You ask, what's our aim? And I answer in one word, victory. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there will be no survival. My question is, how are they going to attain victory? Which goes back to the very beginning. Blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Sweat. You know, Jesus, in those three years of public ministry, it's estimated walked 3,125 miles. Move forward. In the New Testament, uh, some of the books that I love the most are the pastoral books of Timothy. I love it because it's like a father writing to a son. And in his instruction to Timothy, I want you to listen to a couple of the scriptures of what he's telling him to do. 1 Timothy 4.8, he says, Physical training is of, is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. 2 Timothy 3, verses 3 through 7, he uses that powerful word, endure. Maybe another way to put it is just hold on endure. And then he uses these examples, like a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. All occupations are physically demanding jobs. What's he saying? In life, you have to sweat. And you know, when you're playing hurt, that's the last thing you want to hear. But you need to hear it. We all need to hear it. The easy thing to do is just to shut down. But what we need to do is to move forward. Let me share with you some heroes that I heard of recently that teach the power of sweat. The first is Brian Stan. Now, Brian Stan is a Marine. 
He received the silver medal in 2006. He served actively in the Marines from 2003 to 2008. He was also an expert, remains an expert in martial arts, and was a UFC fighter. Currently, he is the CEO of an organization called Hire Heroes USA, in which he goes all across the nation finding great jobs for veterans. So he's quite a guy. But he said, one of the things that I enjoy most is counseling, but I don't counsel like most people in this interview. He said there's a two-step process. The first step is intense martial art workout. We sweat. I mean, we sweat hard. And then we have intense counseling. That's how we attack post-traumatic syndrome. Physical, then emotional. And I thought, you know what? Sometimes as Christians, we try to separate those two, physical and spiritual. And they're not disconnected. We need each other. We need to be physically challenged along with being spiritually challenged. And then I picked up last month the Instride magazine here in Bloomington. Uh, they have the Instride. It just has stories about some of the trails and the, all the races and all the stuff going on in town. But there was a story on the front that really intrigued me. It was about a couple, Kent and Carol. Now, what I love about their story is they work out three times at the Y every week, and then on Saturday, no matter what the weather is, they hike, no matter what. So they decided to issue themselves a challenge. Now, I want to share a quote with you that I'd love you to repeat. A goal without a plan is a wish. Would you say that with me? A goal without a plan is a wish. And so they sat down, and they didn't just have a goal to get healthy or healthier, they set a goal to extremely challenge themselves. And so they wrote down the goal, they put together a plan, and here's what they came up with. They went out to California, and they hiked the John Muir Trail, which is 234 miles, and they did it in 24 days. By the way, Kent is 75, and Carol is 71. That's pretty good stuff. We need to realize that God has challenged us to keep moving forward. I've shared before a quote that I love by Martin Luther King. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Question number two when you're playing hurt. Number two is, am I spiritually centered? Am I spiritually centered? Pray. Pray. It's interesting, in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, God uses a unique phrase. He said, Ezekiel, I'm looking for somebody to stand the gap. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, stand in the gap? Well, it's an interesting phrase, and really what he's saying to Ezekiel is, I need somebody with the courage to take a, really an entire nation that is disconnected from God, and they need to reconnect with God and reconnect with his love. And we need the same thing. We connect through his inspired word, but you know what else? We need to, to reconnect in prayer. But sometimes, I'll be honest, when I have read books on prayer and uh, I've heard messages over the years on prayer, it almost seems overwhelming. So this morning, I don't want to make you feel guilty. Well, actually, I do want to make you feel guilty. But I want to give you some practical suggestions of allowing prayer to kind of work into your everyday life. And so the first question is, where do you start as far as prayer? Now, I can tell you over the years, you'll hear that there's this magical devotional time you set up in the morning, and you always have this picture of a beautiful fire, and you have a, an hour of uninterrupted time, and you try that, and you realize 
your life is uninterrupted for about, what, 37 seconds, and then you get frustrated, and then you throw your Beth Moore study in the fire. I mean, I know. I know what that's like, okay? But here's what I want to challenge you this morning. I think we're starting at the wrong point. I don't think you start, first of all, increasing your prayer life in the morning. I think you start the night before. You know what's interesting? Worldwide, there are 24,000 car accidents that lead to death because of sleep deprivation. They've interviewed spiritual leaders who've done spiritual retreats all over the country, and they've done surveys. The number one reason people say that they can't pray for any length of time, you want to guess what it is? Fatigue. Just too tired. So what happens is, think about in the evenings how we just, sometimes we just watch some of the most worthless TV shows or terrible games or whatever it is, but we drag ourselves and we, we're, we're going to bed so late and then when we wake up, we're just like wiped out. But what if we approach the evenings differently? What if we actually try to get to bed earlier, but actually when we laid our head on the pillow, what if we actually took time and reflected over the day? Like, Lord, where have I fallen short today? And then, Lord, thank you for what you've done in my life. What if we took time every evening to do that? Then how would that affect how we woke up in the morning? Because let's face it, it's hard. Matter of fact, I want you to think about the disciples for just a moment and two encounters. Remember the storm, and they're terrified and they're screaming for their life, and they're yelling out, where's Jesus? Do you remember what Jesus was doing? He was sleeping. And then remember later, as you fast forward, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the world was on the shoulders of Christ, and the cross was before him, and he looked for the disciples, what were they doing? They were sleeping. It's interesting how they got the two mixed up. They were asleep when they should have been awake, and they were awake when they should have been asleep. It's the same struggle that all of us face. John Ortberg said this, and I love it. Arranging to get enough sleep is actually an act of discipleship. It really is. To approach every evening with, you know, Lord, I know to start the new day, it actually starts right now. But then let's talk about the new day. I realize that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who love to get up in the morning, and there are those who hate those who love to get up in the morning. <laughs> I know that. Uh, our marriage is like that. Um, I'm the annoying person. My feet hit the floor. I'm, I love the day. I want to get a cup of coffee. Uh, my wife hates me. Okay, so I, I know what that's like. So I just want to say, whenever it is that you actually are awake, and I realize for all of us, maybe that's your first cup of coffee, uh, whatever it is that you sense, I'm awake, let me challenge you to do something that we did at a Bible study a few weeks ago. I want you to challenge yourself this week to actually sit still and be silent for one full minute. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can do that. I can do that so easy. We did it in our Bible study. And when we were done, I said, how many of you, that's, that's it. That's as long as you've been silent this week so far. And I was surprised somebody said, you know what, it is. I haven't, been, I haven't been silent at all. So I just want to challenge you in the morning, if nothing else, just to be silent, to actually focus on one verse. Don't get hung up on, I got I to gotta read another Bible study. I got to just take a deep breath and hone in on one verse. So let me give you a great verse. Psalms 5.3, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you, and I wait in expectation. 
And then throughout the day, just keep thinking about that one verse. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. And then let me give you a little bonus, something that's helped me this last year. And uh, Jimmy Kane, who is the minister at South Union, um, I just learned so much for Jimmy, especially in the area of prayer. And as I was talking to him, uh, this is old school. He actually has a watch, you know. I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's black, goes around your wrist. Anyway, had a watch, and it beeped. And I said, oh, do you have an appointment? He said, no, I set my alarm so it beeps twice over the day. And every time it beeps, I just, it's, it's a time for me to pray. So he said, what can I pray for you right now? I'm like, wow. And then if you remember last year when we were doing that 40-day journey, I remember thinking, you know, that, that scripture, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, that's really a powerful, you know, if my nation, which is called by my name, will what? Humble themselves and pray. So I set my alarm at 7.14 every morning. It beeps, and it, that's a wake-up call for me to pray. Now, I'd love to tell you at 7.14 every morning it beeps, and I stop, and I sing the doxology, praise God from, excuse me, Mount Maimon line. You know, I, I don't do that. But I can't tell you how many times that's beeped, and I'm like, you know what? I just need to pray that I'll be humble today. I just need to pray for my country today. So on your smartphones, on your watches, I want to tell you that that actually is a, a good solid reminder to just pray. And then Don Adams with our men a few weeks ago issued this challenge that I love. He challenged the men for an entire week before any meaningful conversation or email, say a little prayer. Before any meaningful conversation or email, just say a little prayer, and then see what happens. So I want to challenge you the same thing, in the same way, to, to take prayer and practically move it in your life. There's a wonderful little book, and it's in our bookstore, and it's called In His Presence. It was uh, written by Brother Lawrence. Now, interestingly enough, Brother Lawrence was a monk. He was journaling, basically being in the presence of God, even in the mundane things like washing dishes, and little did he know, but that became an unbelievable seller. In the United States alone, it has sold over 22 million copies. Why? Because in this little book, it's just kind of an instruction manual of being in the presence of God every day in mundane ways. God is everywhere. What if we actually approached every day as an adventure? And we didn't treat prayer as if it was a project or a chore. But if we just allow prayer to kind of be like almost like oil moving through our system to be a part of our everyday life. And then the last question is this. Question number three when you're playing hurt is to ask this. When is the last time I've laughed? When's the last time I've laughed? You know, that's hard. Because when you're playing hurt, that seems... Uh, oxymoron. It just doesn't make any sense. It's interesting. I shared some of these things I'm going to share with you. And I had a doctor and a nurse who approached me and they said, you do realize in the medical field that there really is laugh therapy. That there really is something about the power of laughter. Proverbs 17:22 says, a cheerful heart is good medicine. And I love this. Proverbs 14, 13. Even in laughter, the heart aches. How many of you have had these times in your life when you have to choose, I'm going to laugh or cry about this. How many had that in the last week? I can guarantee it. There's these moments like I can either laugh or I can cry. And I've been, I've been in situations where I've done both. 
like I'm crying and then I'm laughing and then I'm crying and my family thinks he's seriously wrong. Something is wrong with him. We need both. But let me tell you, there is power in laughter even when you're hurting. Years ago, I was uh, sitting in the hospital. These are one of the hardest situations that a minister goes through. And I was with a, a family and friends and it was an emergency surgery. This woman was in a terrible car accident. And as I took her in, really the odds of her surviving were probably under 10%. And everybody in the room knew that. And so we were there for hours. And I remember uh, it was starting to get dark. And interestingly enough, on the other side of this waiting room, uh, home, uh, Funniest Home Videos was on. And so I'm sitting there with a couple people. And I'm like, maybe I should just turn that off because this doesn't seem appropriate. And the entire room moved towards the TV. And the next thing I know, everybody, they're not laughing. They're like almost hysterically laughing. And then I realized what was happening. They were almost begging to laugh again. They needed to laugh again. Do you know, interestingly enough, that 10 minutes of laughter is the equivalent of burning 50 calories. Can I have an amen on that one? (laughs) Probably read the movie or or watched the movie a few years ago, Patch Adams. Uh, who talks about laugh therapy, even has a hospital called Kazoon Hike. And uh, to this day, Patch Ad- <coughs> excuse me, travels six times around the world doing global trips. And he goes to orphanages and children's wards with a whole troop of clowns and just, just craziness. And his motto for life is, my life has been a dance with humanity. That ought to be our motto. Because even in the midst of pain, we need to laugh. I'm thankful that at Sherwood Oaks, I have so many memories, and uh, some are, are tears, uh, but there's been a lot of laughter. And some of you not, might not be aware of this, but I, I have been here twice, and I would, came here the first time in 1985 as a youth minister, and uh, I'd been at some churches previously as a youth minister, and in the 80s, <clears throat> let me just tell you, as a youth minister, the motto was, go big or go home. I mean, everything you did was big, okay? So in previous churches, I did uh, such spiritual things as the town's biggest uh, snowman at one church, and we had this 10-foot snowman, newspaper came, had a big sign, said repent or melt. Um, I did the town's biggest popcorn ball, uh, we did at one church the town's biggest banana split. I mean, I was a spiritual giant, okay? So anyway, so I came to Sherwood Oaks, and my first summer here, I'm like, uh, we got to get some we got to get this thing juiced up, man. we got to get these kids fired up. So at the end of the summer, I went to Tom and I said, I've done this. This will be my third time if you'll give me permission. But I said, it's the town's biggest popsicle. He said, well, how does that work? I said, you get a 50-gallon drum. You fill it with Kool-Aid. You drop a two-by-four. You freeze it like at a marsh and uh, pull that thing out. The kids chip it off. You give them all popsicles. You call the newspaper. Woo! It's awesome. You know? And so he said, uh, okay. You know, so anyway go down. And so I remember going to pick this thing up. And Tom said, now, you've done this before, right? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, now, how many days are you supposed to freeze it? I said, three, three or four. And how many days have you been freezing this one? Eh, three. But that's not that big deal. So we get in, and Tom's pecking on the sides. He didn't trust me. What's that all about? Anyway, he's pecking on the sides. He goes, okay, it feels solid. I'm like, oh, it's going to work. So we get down to church, and I'm getting the kids all jazzed. Come on, kids, you know, we're getting ready. Drum roll, you know, I used to have them do this. So like, yeah. And they were all drum rolling. I said, here comes the popsicle. Boy, I shouldn't have said that. So anyway, we, we pull this out. I can never read Exodus about the Red Sea without visually, 
I don't know if you've ever seen 50 gallons of Kool-Aid just kind of flow over kids. And I'm watching this thing, and the kids are like, oh, you know, like kids are cannonballing in it, you know. And, and now, a responsible minister, his first response would be, save the children. That was not my first response. My first response was I ran to the secretary, and I said, call the newspaper. Not a good time to come. Not a good time. You know, years later, we had the church fire. Uh, I didn't start it, by the way. Anyway, we had a church fire. And I'm down there, and memories start flooding. As I'm, it was hard as I'm walking through. And we're clearing stuff out. And you know, I cleaned some of that garbage, and there, it was white like a beige tile. There was still pink in the cracks of that tile. Man, God is good. He is good. He wants us at times, even when it hurts, God says, I've got something that you can laugh about. A few months ago, our congregation, uh, we had our hearts broken when we received word that Kay Sanford had passed away. And uh, not long ago, I was working with Tim, and, and I said, you know, Tim, I'm preaching after Thanksgiving, and I said, uh, you inspired me at that funeral service. I mean, when you talked about Kay, and you had the object lessons about Kay's life, but I said, that video they showed of Kay, can I show that video? Because I said, it was so encouraging for me. And just so you know, Kay battled her entire life. Physically, she was bent over. And if there was anybody who had excuses, it would have been Kay. But she always had one-liners. She always just lived life as, matter of fact, if you really wanted to frustrate Kay, is tell Kay what she could not do, because she was going to try to do it. And so I want to share with you a slice of Kay's life that has encouraged me, and I hope it will encourage you. You guys can play that. <laughs> You're not supposed to go yet. Not go yet. Hold on. <laughs> Makes you want to go ziplining today, doesn't it? I just want you to know today that I know what is coming these next few weeks. I know for some of you this is the most amazing time of the year. But I know for some of you this is going to be some of the most painful few weeks that are right ahead. And at the end of every pew we have a card. And on the card it simply says, playing hurt. And I want you to know how we want to issue our invitation this morning. And that is, if there's anything you'd like the staff for this entire Christmas season to pray for, would you write that on that card and we will pray for you. We're going to hand these cards out to the entire staff. We're going to hand them out to our elders just so that you know that you'll be prayed for. Now, here's the thing. We don't even want you to sign it. God knows who you are. I mean, you got to know that your picture is in God's wallet. He knows who you are, but... We just want to give you the opportunity to write, here's 
what pain I'm dealing with right now. And then I want you to know that we're in this together and we'll pray for you.